Welcome back to Russell Street Replay. I'm Nick Hilmetha, and with me, as always, is Ronald Tooth. Ron, how are we doing this evening? I'm doing better than I've been doing in a long time, my friend. We are fresh off the heels of Eric DaCosta's second big signing of the day. And even better, we are joined by my old buddy from Ebony Bird and of the Daily Ravens Mox on Twitter, Michael Natelli. My brother, how are we doing? What's going on, guys? It's been a, it's been a good day so far. Putting it Michael. lightly. <laughs> yeah, Michael, it's great to have you on the pod, and especially on a day when we're we're kind of doing the first of our instant replay podcast. We're recapping the first two days of NFL free agency. Most importantly, the Ravens moves, which have been first signing free safety Marcus Williams to a five-year, $70 million deal, and then signing offensive tackle Morgan Moses to a three-year, $15 million deal. That's two big moves on the second day of free agency after not doing anything on the first day. And Williams is obviously the bigger move here, bigger money, bigger player uh, in terms of importance. He's definitely not physically bigger than Morgan Moses, but... Guys, what are what are your first reactions to the Marcus Williams signing? What was kind of the first thing you you thought or felt when when they announced it? Uh, well, I mean, the first thing I felt obviously was a, a little bit of a combination of shock and elation, just because it was like finally that first domino fell of who we were going to bring in. You know, yesterday was very. Um, was very rough to sit through, I guess we'll say. Uh, me and Michael sat here on Zoom for eight-plus hours. Nikhil, you were with us for some of that. Just waiting, just staring at that clock and waiting. And uh, to finally see that that first name pop up today, and of all the people to be Marcus Williams, somebody who we probably didn't think we had much of a chance on with how many teams are interested in him and the money that was being thrown to him. But, I mean, the contract is really good. Uh, it almost seems like he probably took a little bit of less money to come to Baltimore as opposed to, you know, maybe some of these lesser teams that were offering him more. But, uh, I mean, I, I just – nothing short of pumped. Bravo, Eric Costa. Yeah, it's uh, – you know, you look at DaCosta's first couple moves as general manager, things like bringing in Earl Thomas, bringing in Marquise Brown – both moves where you could almost feel just a little bit burned because they have, I think, both moves in very, very, very different ways have not become exactly what you were hoping for. Brown obviously played out a little better than Thomas did, but but between going back and taking Rashad Bateman in round one and now signing another big contract safety, it's been really encouraging to see DaCosta not um, not get shell-shocked or not be scared to do the same thing again in fear that it might not work because it didn't the first time. Um, both moves at the time were totally defensible. Both moves, you know, had their bright spots and in the case of Brown continue to have bright spots. Um, but both in a lot of ways, I think it didn't play out the way that Ravens fans may have hoped. And it'd be really easy for DaCosta to play it scared this time around, um, and not want to get, you know, bit again, um, especially with Thomas's cap still on the books in some ways. And so it's cool to see that he's like, no, we're going to get this right. Um, I think that's probably something that you didn't see quite as much, maybe even in the Aussie Newsome years, um, despite all the incredible things Newsom did for the Ravens. Um, and so that is probably my biggest takeaway of all of them is let's go. Um, he's ready and he's, he's not going to play scared. And that's, that's what we need if the Ravens are going to take the next step forward. Yeah. So first of all, I, I mean, I, I love that. I think that's a, that's a really good point in terms of not being afraid to go after the same thing when, when you're, when you're held in your convictions and the, now that you mentioned this, something I was going to mention later, but now that you mentioned it, Lacey DaCosta, uh, Eric DaCosta's wife tweeted, beware of the eyes of March. 
about 51 minutes ago, which is a little bit, I think, after the uh, Morgan Moses signing dropped. And it's just like that's just a legendary tweet and really sums up like how like the Ravens fans are feeling today. Like we we do talk a lot about this team is like we've got a really good front office. Um, but one of the concerns is big free agency splash moves, big acquisitions uh, that we had coming into this offseason. We felt like we needed one and we weren't sure if they were going to be able to make one. And Marcus Williams is that. And not only that, it's just I don't like using the word perfect a lot, but in terms of fits in what you say with the Ravens, like with the defense, not missing out on Earl Thomas it is a perfect fit at this point in the franchise for like where the defense is. And so, you know, excited. They did something in the first place, right. To get off the ground. I was really pleasantly surprised. It was Marcus Williams. And then the number I was ecstatic at, which kind of sum up my reaction. So yeah. Also, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. We're all just kind of jumping over each other because we're so excited, but five for 70. I mean, I mean, that's, that's tremendous. Like, when you look at like the contract of some of the other, you know, um, like a Justin Simmons or a uh, Jamal Adams, uh, it's, it's just, it's just awesome. And he's that pure center fielder that we've wanted for so long and that we had a little bit there with Earl and then things unfortunately ended how they ended. But since Ed Reed, we've been looking for that. And this feels like pretty much our best chance and not, not our best chance, our best it almost feels like a guarantee that like short of something astronomically bad, which knock on wood, you know, um, we have that position locked up for the next five and maybe even more years. Yeah. Think about it. Right. This kind of free safety doesn't come on the market at this age like that. Right. He played his first, his first, uh, you know, four seasons. He was a second round pick played his first four seasons for the saints. And then, they tagged or extended him. I'm not sure, but he played for, I think, a pretty cheap number last year. It might have been back when the second rounders also had fifth year options when he was drafted is what it was. And so this kind of guy at that age doesn't have the market that often. And to lock him up f- five years for, for 70 is really good, um, especially at a time in the NFL when you see teams dropping more guys back into coverage, more of these you know, split safety, way more deep coverage looks against these top quarterbacks that we have to play in the AFC and guys, like, I mean, we just added Tom Brady and Russell Wilson to our schedule. We kind of needed this on the back end now playing those guys. Uh, schematically, I feel like it frees up Clark to play underneath more and have a bit more of a roving role where he can use that anticipation he has. And I think, like, honestly, Tony Jefferson playing underneath in that kind of money backer, dime backer role as well. Um, but the big thing I think here is playing more matchups with wide receivers and tight ends with Brent, with Brandon Stevens and Marlon Humphrey because they're really versatile defensive backs that can both play in the slot, both play outside, cover a bunch of different kind of guys. I think having a guy who can drop back and play free safety like Williams means we can do so much more on the front end. And the other thing I'll mention before I kick it over to Michael is that Marcus Peters is going to be excited and going after a lot of interceptions, knowing he has Williams behind him on the back end. Just coming off an injury, I really hope like this could be a comeback player of the year type season for Peters. I would just love nothing more. 
Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I know, Ron, you and I were talking about this earlier, but first, the fact that, you know, we know the salary cap's not really real, uh, jokes aside, but like, not only that, but a lot of the contract numbers we see, they're, they're real, but a lot of these four, five, six-year deals you see in free agency are really three, four-year deals with the understanding that year five, year six is almost a guaranteed cap casualty year. Um, but with Marcus Williams, 25 at a number that I think Earl Thomas three years ago signed for 13.7 a year. And you just got Marcus Williams for 14, three years later with a much bigger salary cap. That's, I mean, that's just ridiculous when you think about it in that perspective, but it's a chance for it. You know, we'll see where we're at in 2027, but there's a chance for this to be an actual five-year deal, which is so rare in free agency, especially for a non-quarterback. Um, so what a get in that way. And then also, I know we were talking about earlier, um, it, it's a chance to not only unleash Marcus Peters, but hopefully get Marlon Humphrey, his swagger back a little bit. You could tell last year it, it's overstated how bad his year was, but let's be fair. But at the same time, you could tell that not having a true center fielder behind him kind of messed with him a little bit. He was just not as aggressive. And then when he was aggressive, he got bit because there wasn't a guy backing him up. Um, and then he kind of just got stuck in no man's land a lot. He'd have one foot back, maybe trying to play soft, another foot forward to play aggressive. He just couldn't decide what he wanted to do. And it really, you could tell, just messed with his head. Um, and so now, now we're back, right? Whether the, whether he's playing outside, whether he's playing in the slot, we'll see what happens with the Ravens uh, defensive back group here going forward. But where, wherever he is, he's going to be decisive now, or at least he should be. Um, and that should be a key focus in training camp for him is getting comfortable knowing that there's that cushion back there. Um, he gets to play, he gets to bowl with bumpers now, and that is just a whole different ball game. Um, as someone who consistently shoots like a one twenty three. Uh, man, the world is a different place when you get to throw the bumpers, bumpers up. So uh, let's see what happens there. That's probably what I'm most excited about. And the fact that Stevens, to your point, gets to be kind of using that Daxton Hill role um, in, in the Mike McDonald defense. Uh, I and mean, we saw Hill was in the slot a ton last year. He, he wasn't a true slot corner by any means, but they threw him in the slot to get to disguise coverages a lot. And um, using him in that Jimmy Smith kind of, is he a safety? Is he a slot? Is he a coverage linebacker? Um, it's going to be blitzing. Like who knows? You have, you have no idea what to expect. And the fact that he's not being asked to be a free safety, uh, a true conventional designated free safety this year. Now, um, regardless of where he ends up in the mix by the time we're done with the off season, as far as the defensive back depth chart goes, it's going to let them do a lot more things. Um, and that's just, that's really exciting. And more, you know, just to kind of add to what Nikhil said before about these quarterbacks that we have on the schedule that weren't here a week ago, uh, there's a pretty good chance that we're going to be adding Deshaun Watson to that list too. And that is going to be Marcus Williams' homecoming party in New Orleans. So that game also has the potential for a lot of interesting threads going in. So, um, you know, when you add names like that to your schedule, you, you need some reinforcements. And there really wasn't a more perfect one on the market than Williams. And most importantly, Mitch Trubisky just got his wide receiver one. I think that's the most important thing in all of this. <laughs> Love it. That's that's good. I think that might be any that better than any tweet I've seen so far about the signing. So so that, that, that's solid. So um, I think one of the other things you mentioned is him taking that Daxton Hill role. Hill is a guy that 
We talked about the Ravens maybe moving back four, moving up in the second or back in late in the first four. Um, now I don't think that's less likely they move around for him. I still think they could take a safety in a number of places, depending on who's there. But by signing a safety, you don't force yourself to take a safety where I think a lot of people would have really wanted them to take a safety in the first two days of the draft if they didn't sign one in free agency. And so that's one of the other benefits of this signing. And, uh, you know, two other things I want to note here. One, the Ravens clearly like him enough to take a hit in the comp pick formula. We know how much they care about the compensatory picks in the draft. And this is definitely a signing that's going to affect that and, and hurt and prevent the Ravens from picking up as many picks next year. Um, but that's worth it for a guy like this on a deal like this. I'm sure we all agree. And two other, and one other thing, um, you know, we had our, our fellow Russell street reporters, uh, Brian McFarlane, and Tony Lombardi recorded their front office podcast uh, yesterday as well, uh, or I guess earlier today. And, you know, they, one thing Brian pointed out was that Williams cap hit could be as low as $4 million this year or as high as seven or eight. And that's going to tell us if the Ravens have another big swing in mind once those numbers come out, because if they keep it on the low end, like four, then I think they're looking at another probably double digit annual average annual value signing. If it's higher than seven or eight, then they're trying to keep more of the, they're trying not to spread out too much money. And they're probably not making another big swing this year. Um, they made a, I guess it counts as a small swing, maybe a medium swing since it's a, a big position of need. Um, the next signing that they made, which uh, kind of broke, you know, we actually had to push back the scheduling of this podcast because of the signing broke Morgan Moses, offensive tackle, who we signed, uh, played for the jets last season, signed him for three years, $15 million. Uh, guys, what was your first reaction to that signing? Uh, well, my first reaction was these Eric, the cost haters are about to be parting like the red sea. <laughs> had to get my dad joking for the week. A little religious humor for you. Anyway, uh, I mean, it's in terms of the the price point. Yeah, it's like a middle tier signing. But I mean, I love Moses. He was one of those guys that those and the those that were really in the know on Ravens Twitter have kind of been uh, pounding the table for over the last couple of weeks as somebody who would be a great plug in at that right tackle and. I mean, I I believe it was four sacks he gave up and over a thousand snaps last year. I mean, that's that's awesome. You know, the fact that he hasn't missed a game since what 2014, something like that. Either way, both him and Williams, uh, perhaps the biggest uh, plus of bringing them in is that they're both such durable guys, and you know that you're going to be able to count on them week in and week out. And after we with what we saw last season, which we don't even have to rehash it that is by far the, the thing that you're looking for most in these guys that you're bringing in guys that, you know, you can count on to be there. So that's probably my favorite part of the Morgan Moses signing. Yeah. That noise is me knocking on wood as you say the word durable, <laughs> but Michael. Yeah. You know, it's probably not fair to say it's a bigger move than Marcus Williams, but when you look at all the different dominoes in play that are in some way addressed, by signing Morgan Moses, you could almost, and I almost make the case it's a bigger signing when you talk about where's Patrick McCarry going to play? Is Ronnie Stanley healthy? Do you have to take a tackle round one or round two? Or can you wait for it to be a depth tackle that maybe develops behind, you know, even worst case scenario, Morgan, Morgan Moses on the left and Patrick McCarry on the right? You now don't need to find a starting tackle in the draft. 
you know, do you want an upgrade over McCarry? Yes. Would he be a better swing tackle? Yes. But you don't have to do it gun to your head if you don't think that any of these tackles are worthy of that pick. You don't have to reach and, and sort of deviate from the board for the sake of doing whatever the heck it takes to keep Lamar Jackson upright. And in that way, it is just such a massive move. And the fact that they didn't invest more than $5 million annually, we'll see what his cap hit is in year one, but uh, in terms of average annual salary, $5 million, it's not so crazy that if Stanley's healthy, it feels like you're paying left tackle money to a right tackle, or you can sort of do whatever you need to do with him. Even if you find some round one or round two stud right tackle, you can make him a swing tackle and not feel so icky about it. Um, it's just, there's so many different ways it frees you up um, in terms of, you know, cap in terms of what you're going to do in the draft and, you know, not rushing Ronnie Stanley back and what you can do with McCarry. There's so many different layers to it. Um that the the drop off from not having Morgan Mo, or from having Morgan Moses to not having Morgan Moses is it's almost easier to see that as a bigger drop off than from where we were at with Deshaun Elliott last year to Brandon Stevens at free safety and in that way I think it it almost excites me more um, for that reason. So I think you and I are like really close on this. I think the Williams signing still fundamentally excites me more just to have him on the team. But I think the wannabe GM in me is a lot more intrigued by the potential and possibilities brought about by the Moses signing, right? Like, like all the things you said, exactly spot on. But the big one is now we don't have to worry about getting a starting tackle through the draft because that's where a lot of people were like, that's where, what we have to do. It's penning at 14. And a lot of people, me included, don't like penning at 14. Uh, and then guilty as also, well. You also don't want to get pigeonholed when you have a top 15 pick into taking one position, especially if it's a not top, it's not a top three player at that position. So mm-hmm. this this frees them up in that respect. It also frees them up positionally left tackle versus right tackle. And this is something we know well in Baltimore as being important. So Moses can be a left tackle in a pinch. I'm not starting him. He's not probably prefer he's ideally going into the season not even second on the depth chart um but it is worth noting that he can in an emergency start play left tackle the other thing is that this means that now we don't have to worry about prioritizing a guy who's ready to play right tackle right away and we can actually do the smarter thing which is prioritize someone who we think projects as a potential long-term left tackle if stanley can't hold up because that's really what the draft needs to be about and while that doesn't have to be a day one first round pick, I don't like, again, penning at 14, I don't like a trade back maybe, but I'm still not convinced. Um, someone like Daniel Falele out of Minnesota, again, on day two would work. But then there's also guys like Nicholas Petit Frere, Rashid Walker, a bunch of guys I've mentioned who have good pedigrees in college and maybe just need a little bit of NFL development as a tackle to grow into a starter. And I think those are guys that we have more flexibility to potentially go after and not have to rely on them in a season where we're trying to make a run at a Super Bowl. Uh, that's kind of, you know, my, my, the, oh, the main other thing I want to mention is signing the, the money, uh, $5 million a year. Like you mentioned, we signed Alejandro Villanueva to us two year. It was two year and 14, two year and 16, something like that. But Morgan Moe is cheaper than Alejandro Villanueva. Right. And so obviously, you know, Villanueva, I don't know if we get better left tackle play out of Moses than Villanueva, but we definitely get better right tackle play than the left tackle play that Villanueva was offering overall play from Moses than we do Villanueva. 
And I think this year, if Stanley doesn't come back, we're in a lot bigger trouble than not having Alejandro Villanueva there to back him up anyway. So just a big fan of this move in a lot of ways. Uh, other other things you guys want to mention about this this signing or if there's anything else we missed when it comes to Marcus Williams before we kind of move on to the rest of kind of the potential rest of free agency for the Ravens. Uh, I guess my, my biggest thing just in terms of the Ravens specifically is, and obviously in terms of the Ravens specifically, that's why we're here today. <laughs> but uh, I'm just interested, and we kind of discussed this a little bit earlier, um, just in terms of that Marcus Williams cap number and what that's going to look like for 22 and whether or not they're going to take that one bigger hack at free agency, you know, whether that is as a Darius Smith or, you know, one, just one of these other pass rushers that are still out there. Maybe it's via a trade, something like that. You know, we, we've kind of heard some things going on in the last couple of days, um, just, you, you know, kind of behind the scenes. So uh, who knows? I guess, but uh, it's very exciting overall. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, this tackle class, when you look at the draft, is not it's not deep if you're looking for a guy you can trust on day one. It's really deep if you look at guys that the Ravens really kind of favor in terms of traits and developmental um, in that de- developmental aspect. Um, and so suddenly this becomes a kind of class that the Ravens can love. When you look at guys like Max Mitchell, you look at guys like Braxton James, um, it gets really fun because those are the kinds of guys that you're not going to ideally be having start on week one, but you'd love to have them as your left tackle too, developing behind a guy like Stanley. And then God forbid, if we go through this year and the dude just doesn't have it or the ankle's just not recovering the way you want and you have to part ways with them somehow or another next off season, maybe in year two, they can be that starter for the long term who has been coached up by this, by the staff who, despite the fact that the Ravens have had such a bad offensive line lately, they've done a pretty nice job of getting a lot out of guys that did not have a high pedigree. When you look at Matt Scurra, you look at Colon Castillo, you look at Bozeman, who was, I think a sixth round pick. Yep. And, that's, and while no one's going to be, you know, celebrating the work that Matt Scurra or Tristan Colon have done in Baltimore necessarily, when you consider the pedigree of who they were, I think both of them were undrafted free agents. The fact that they were ever taking, you know, starter snaps on a team that was competing for the postseason is in itself an accomplishment. That doesn't mean we should keep going and doing that. That's not the playbook for fixing the offensive line. Um, But when you consider the fact that now you're not hopefully relying on a player like that right away and you can actually coach them up and develop them, that's really exciting. Um, And so suddenly this tackle class just became a lot more interesting for the Ravens, in my opinion. Yeah. And what you said about being prepared when it comes to Stanley – uh, really, really reminds me like two things about this team that I think they do better than a fair amount of number of organizations is uh, recovering from mistakes and multi-year planning. You mentioned knowing that the Earl Thomas signing in and of itself wasn't a mistake, right? So they didn't feel the need to avoid it again. But this year they knew that going into the season, expecting Ronnie Stanley to be able to play left tackle for sure was a mistake. And signing Moses is one step. And I think drafting a tackle is another to address that. But the other thing is suppose, you know, he gets through the year, but it doesn't work or he gets injured again and something and the season goes down the drain again, you still want to look to compete again. And in doing that, you you have a guy already ready to go that you drafted instead of being in this situation for a third off season in a row. Oh, absolutely. When you look at, it's really easy to pick on Eric DaCosta for a lot of reasons, but it, when you look at some of the mistakes that have happened, whether it's, I mean, 
we won't go through the whole Earl Thomas situation and how that whole thing played out, whether it's the fight at practice or the, the more personal side of that. But there's no way on earth, even for the fact that he's a guy who, as he's getting carted off, flicks off the fans, like that, that doesn't make you go, oh, he's going to do that, right? There's no way to see that coming. There's, you know, when you sign the best tackle in football to an extension, no one's going to question that move. Um, there's a lot of things that have happened for the Ravens that, you know, it would be easy in any other organization that isn't Baltimore caliber, Baltimore standard to be like, well, that means that we're going to take a couple of years off. We're going to recover from this salary cap wise. I'm pretty sure Thomas was on the books last year or he's going to be this year. I forget which, but um, it, was 10, it was 10 million last season. So it's easy to punt right in that case, but we're playing with 30 million on the books that are let alone all the injuries, by the way, last year, and salary cap that was on IR and they were still in all those games. I know people argue they should have won them, but the fact we also don't, we don't do the flip side of that. Right. Which is that Tyler Huntley and, and a bunch of guys from Foot Locker went toe to toe with the Packers and Rams who, by the way, won the Super Bowl. like that, that in itself. Uh, yeah. Should they, should he have thrown that first half pick? No. Should they have been in that game? No. So there, there's the flip side of this, which as a fan, it's always harder to do. But the way that DaCosta and his team have been able to navigate all of those things and not phone it in for a couple of years and find a way to still put together a, a competitive product where you're even discussing the Ravens as a postseason team is, is a pretty remarkable accomplishment in and of itself, regardless of the fact that those things didn't work. Because to your point, signing, signing those guys was not a bad move in and of itself. They've gotten a pretty freaking unlucky hand with some of these things and how they've played out um and so to be able to recognize that rather than playing scared is uh i mean that in and of itself you know they should deserve some kudos for because it's easy to play armchair quarterback but it's a lot harder when your job is on the line so um hats off to eric DaCosta for that yeah and just to kind of just to kind of piggyback off of that a little bit the way that they've been able to combine a more aggressive approach without totally losing that classic Ravens slash Eric DaCosta motto of right player, right price. You know, when we told, we just talked about that Marcus Williams contract. And then you look at what, you know, like what Jacksonville has done in the last few days and how they've given North of a hundred million dollars to Christian Kirk and Zay Jones. And it's like, when you look at how some of these other teams in football are ran and kind of the flack that Eric DaCosta gets sometimes for the moves that he does or doesn't make. It's like, you know, the grass isn't always greener and we've got a really good one here. And um, hopefully we're saying that for a long time. And, th- and there's no better indication of that than what we've seen take place today with the signings of Williams and Moses. Yeah, it's a fan base with high expectations, but I think the good thing about that is so is the, the organization has those expectations too. I think that you don't really ever hear the fan or honestly players complaining about how the fans treat the Ravens or talk about the Ravens. Like you see, like Tyron Matthew, for example, complains about how the cheat has complained about how Chiefs fans tweet and talk about the team. And even though those fans are definitely out there, you don't really see the Ravens complain about it because they hold themselves to that standard too, that it's really all coming from a standard of excellence. And, you know, now after these two signings are done, we, we don't think we don't think the Ravens are done yet either. Do we guys, what do we think is maybe their next biggest position of need? And we can kind of talk about some of the free agent targets in that position. Well, there's still a need for a corner for a little bit of depth there. 
You can never have too much of it, especially in this defense that is likely going to be employing a lot of defensive backs on any given play. So um, whether they choose to address that in the draft or the players that are left on the board or both, honestly, you know, there's um, there's a lot of kind of guys out there, kind of veteran guys, not just at corner, but even at safety, too. If you if you were really committed to just moving all these guys around and making all of them kind of these like malleable positionless sort of defenders. Like there's so many veteran guys out there. Like I've been a big proponent of Anthony Harris on this show. Um, Patrick Peterson's another one who's out there just kind of hanging around. These guys are going to get, you know, really, really cheap kind of one year deals. So, um, I mean, I guess a lot of it also goes back to what we were talking about uh, earlier in terms of how much Williams is going to get this year and uh, how that how that's going to sort of play things out. But it's either going to be in the secondary or an edge rusher or they're just going to keep trying to build that offensive line more. Yeah, so staying staying with the staying with the cornerbacks, uh, you know, I'd be surprised they left free agency without signing a cornerback. I even think like Tavon Young could be back on a on just a cheaper deal than he was on. I think that's maybe even the most likely outcome, honestly, is since we know we need someone in the slot. Uh, maybe we don't even necessarily want Young to start in the slot, but we do want a, a, a depth slot guy to have like him. Chris Westry, obviously the other one, re, you know, declined to offer him a restricted free agent tender. And now that he's on the open market, uh, I think he will be on the open market officially tomorrow at 4 p.m. Um, unless we tender him, like that's another, like we don't have a depth, solid outside cornerback either and so there are those holes to fill and you definitely want at least one more free agent signed in uh, or free agent cornerback signed at some point uh, well because you know they're always going to invest in the draft but you still want another veteran in case you know god forbid more injuries happen knock on wood again uh, michael any cornerback targets uh you know i think you got you hit it on the head right there ron with with pearson and um you know, what seeing what Levi Wallace got today, eight million over two years, it begs the question, is a guy like Anthony Aver back in play? Um, you know, what maybe, maybe the Giants want him and he'd rather, you know, Ron, I know you've said this to me several times. Maybe he wants to go follow a wink up to New York. But at the same time, if that's the money and he doesn't have a better role there, maybe he wants to come back, be comfortable. You know, McDonald's gonna run a pretty similar defense to Wink Martindale. So eight over two. I mean, I think that most people were saying no way to Averett because they thought he was going to get some ridiculous contract, sort of the, the cornerback equivalent of what we saw with Christian Kirk and Jacksonville. I mean, nothing like that, but you know what I mean? Like something that is above what a player of his caliber is worth. Um, I think that was where a lot of the, we don't want Anthony Averett back kind of narrative came from. But if, if I told you, you can get him for eight over two, suddenly that becomes a lot more appealing. We saw him start this year. He played pretty well before he got hurt. There was a couple of plays that, Surely he'd want back, but he also went toe to toe with Tyreek Hill um, pretty admirably there uh, in, in week two. Uh, and so maybe a guy like that. Um, I think it's really important to get somebody that you feel comfortable having to start out there on the outside. Um, because we still, you know, knock on wood, we hope that Marcus Peters comes back 100%. But if he doesn't, what do you what do you do then? Suddenly this cornerback room is a lot is a lot thinner. Um, suddenly you have to put Marlon on the outside. You don't have the flexibility with him to put him on the inside. Uh, I think slots just a lot less of a need because you have guys like Stevens and even Chuck Clark in the pitch if you have to that you can throw in the slot already that have shown that they can handle the slot already. Um, and for that matter, Marlon uh, Marlon Humphrey can go in, in the slot. Whereas the you don't have a lot of options right now on the outside. I, people tell me that there's a guy named Amon Marshall on the roster. I don't, I still don't believe that. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll see if that, 
apparently he exists, uh, but I think he's about as real as Bigfoot at the moment. So, you know, may, maybe he could, maybe he can come out of the woods and play, but apart from that, you don't really have a lot of options, I guess, Khalil Dorsey, but if the season started today and Marcus Peters isn't ready to go, um, you don't have a second outside corner right now. It's Brandon Stevens and then what? So let's go get another outside corner, whether it's Jack rabbit Jenkins or Patrick Peterson or somebody like that, or Anthony Averett, um, it's going to make the draft much more enjoyable because you're not looking for a guy who can take a week one snap if he has to. Um, you can find a guy you can coach up and by midseason who can be an asset. I hear Robert Jackson's looking for work. Let's keep it that way, please. Um, you know, I honestly, I'd love to see Westry back. I think something something cheap if he wants a one-year prove-it deal because – you know, he thinks he can do better because he didn't get that much play time. Honestly, he was injured a lot. And so I think teams are a little bit scared off by that, but we know the Ravens like him. I think there's a good chance either he, one of the three of him, him young and Averett are back. And that's a guy, at least one starter you're comfortable rolling with. Obviously we're not comfortable with young on the outside, but uh, you know, we can at least roll with that. Another place where we need a starter center and obviously the big story here is Bradley Bozeman being unsigned after, you know, a reportedly pretty big market for him. But I can't even I don't even feel like listing all of the teams that signed or re-signed a center and, and no longer need one. I think it's pretty much only maybe the Bears and the Panthers that I know of as of right now. And we're recording this again Tuesday, March 15th at, at around, right around 1130 p.m., um, it's only those two teams that really need a center at this point. And so that's, he, he may have liked his odds of getting top five center money, which is maybe like probably 12 million a year or something like that on the open market after he saw Jensen get 39 over Ryan Jensen, get 39 over three, but then the market dried up quick. Everyone went cheaper. Um, Guys, do we think Bozeman is the play here? Tony Lombardi really uh, uh, said on the front office podcast that he really likes JC Treader as someone who might be less expensive and won't hurt the compact formula while Bob Bozeman signing somewhere else could actually gain us one. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much down to those two. And that's how it feels unless you're going to address it in the draft and just kind of punt on the position altogether in free agency. Uh, and it's kind of interesting because it almost feels like, like it's, it's very obvious that Bozeman didn't get the market that he was looking for. Cause if he did, he would have been signed by now. So now that Treader's out there and there's all of a sudden this other elite center out there, like how does he play that? Does he drop his number a little more just so he can, you know, kind of be the first of those two to be able to go to the destination that he wants to go to? Because any team that's looking at Bozeman obviously is going to make a call to Treader after today's news. So it's almost like a bidding war between the two of those guys now to see who's going to get the more ideal position. And who's just going to go somewhere that, you know, the team might not be as good and the supporting cast around him on the offensive line might not be as good, um, but it's just going to be a starting job. So I guess that's really kind of the most interesting part to me. Yeah, it's interesting. The question also, you have to wonder, does he consider marketing himself as a center or guard, right? I mean, you see a team like New England just trade away Shaq Mason. They have a big old hole on the left left side now, uh, or I guess he's, he was right guard last year, but they, they got a guard need. Um, he's played guard. He's played guard really well. He's, he was one of the best, you know, when it came to, you know, running to the right side and pulling him, no one did it better in the NFL than Bradley Bozeman as left guard. And so do you, 
do you market someone like, or does he market himself that way? Because we've seen guards get paid roughly what he's probably looking to get paid. Um, and there's not a whole lot of great guards out there right now. Brandon Scherf just got paid by Jacksonville. But apart from that, the, the guard market's pretty, pretty dry. Um, and if he does that, you'd have to think that the, the suitors expand. I also think that while the numbers probably aren't going to be what he wants, the number of teams are still out there, right? It's the Giants have Matt Scura, right? Which, last we checked, doesn't go so well if you want to be a playoff team. You know, there's the Panthers are out there. The Bengals still need a, a, a good center. Um, the Browns just released their center. So do they want him? I don't I don't want to think about that, but if they release their center, they have a center, their, a center need. So there's still a market for him. The question is just what kind of money are those teams prepared to spend on a guy who's only played center in the NFL for one season? Uh, he played it really well, but he, it's, you know, we see one hit wonders in this league all the time. So, um, yeah, I, I welcome him back. Um, but I do think the idea that his market drawing up means something like, you know, he's coming back on a 5 million annual deal probably isn't realistic either. So, um, not that you guys are suggesting that, but so we'll, we'll, we'll see what it looks like, but by all means. I mean, if I had to like peg something, I would say like three for 25 sounds nice. Maybe a cap hit in his first year. That's like four to five goes up the next few years. That's manageable. I, I do think that does take us out of a big swing otherwise, probably. But again, I'm not sure that we really need a big swing at this point with the draft capital we have and the talent we have on the team otherwise. I do think it's worth noting, though, I think Bozeman is a lot better as a center. I don't. I think you know he could try and play himself off as a guard, but the honest thing is, he is a lot better as a center. He's probably a he's he's a probably a top ten center. He's probably about a league average guard to me. He is not like a a guard that's getting double digit millions, you know, money. And so I think he's probably better off as like honestly profiling himself as a pass blocking center because that's how he that's what he did in Baltimore last year. And I think that's that's part of the reason why I want him back is not just because he's good as a run blocker in our scheme, but specifically because he is just a great pass blocker. And I'm really comfortable with that in front of Lamar Jackson. So I'd be really happy to have him back. Um, another place where I think we need a starter because Tyus Bowser is still, he apparently is making good progress on his recovery, but obviously, you know, we can't expect him to be back and, and starting and have a full complement of snaps. I mean, there were games he played every snap last season. We can't expect that from him right away for when he returns. So edge, um, you know, outside linebacker, the Ravens, this is to me, this is the place where they would take a big swing uh, if they have one. Zadarius Smith is the big one. They've been linked with him already. I th- I'm, I'm curious to see what the mark edge market ends up being because it's pretty clearly you have the, the, the almost generationally good pass rushers, all pros in Chandler Jones and Von Miller. And then one notch below that, you have Zadarius Smith. And then below that, it's a lot of random stuff, a mix of veterans and young guys. So what do we think of this edge market? Do we think Smith could come back? And if not, what are maybe some other targets you guys have? Well, I do think Smith could come back, but it's, it's kind of, you know, to what you were just saying, it's like, do we want to get Bozeman back on a cheapish deal and then kind of go to that second or third tier of veteran or not veteran pass rushers or, do, do you want to just take that one big swing and then whatever holes are left, you know, whether it's center um, or any other kind of position, do you just kind of say, all right, that's what we're doing in the draft and kind of forego the whole 
best player available as opposed to just filling the needs, which usually they do like to go best player available. So if they were to take another big swing, it kind of feels like it would like kind of prevent them from doing that because the emphasis would have to be more on filling those holes that they just ignored completely in free agency. Um, so I guess we'll kind of see, but you know, there is some guys in that sort of second tier that I do like just, you know, like an Akeem Hicks or like Jerry Hughes, somebody like that, who's not really going to get the money that like Z is going to get, but that can still help along the defensive line and really sort of make a difference. Um, I think edge is one of those positions in, or of the positions that are left in free agency edge is probably the one that's still the most stacked when you just look at in terms of depth. So um, I would probably prefer that they go a little bargain bin hunting there and then maybe try to address it again in the middle rounds of the draft because we know how deep this draft class is with pass rushers as well. Uh, I would probably prefer them take that route as opposed to just, you know, bringing in that one guy and paying him like 15 million a year or whatever the hell Zedarius is going to get. Yeah, when I was sort of taking a look at this offseason before free agency kicked off, sort of I think it was the night of the Chiefs and Bills game. And my kind of takeaway from that was when you're going to try and build, rebuild these Ravens, it's not chasing the Chiefs, it's not chasing the Bengals. It's, it's modeling yourselves in a way after the Bills. And one of the ways to do that, when you look at the Bills, great defense, but no Chandler Jones, Von Miller, caliber, edge rusher. Now, you know, that Jerry Hughes, maybe Greg Rousseau becomes becomes that, but th- that was not the case this year. They don't have a 15-sack guy on that roster. They have eight guys that rotate in and out that they just continue to throw at you, and they just wear down the offensive line. You think about, you know, the Ravens and, and other rushing teams that want to wear down defenses. They do that to, to an offense. They do that to an offensive line. And, um, you know, for a team that doesn't have tons of cap space, a team that does have other space or needs that they're going to want to fill, it's hard. You know, we always want for a team that hasn't had like a, a Terrell Suggs caliber guy or a, even as a Darius Smith caliber guy in a few years, it's easy to pound the table for that after we watch just how bad our pressure rate has been over the last couple of years. But for a team without that that much in the way of resources, it's you can make a much more compelling case, I think, to go find a guy like a Jason Pierre-Paul, bring back Justin Houston, you know, someone of that tier, Jerry Hughes, Mario Addison, whoever it may be, and then go take an edge in round one or round two or round three. Um, you know, Eric DaCosta in one of his more recent press conferences said that last year one of the mistakes he made was acting as if Ronnie Stanley was fine. And I think that while that's true, it's also true of um, the the off or the roster more in general. You banked on him coming back. You banked on Derek Wolf recovering. You banked on Nick Boyle being fine. You know, you banked on Jimmy Smith being healthy. You, you can go down the list of guys who were hurt at some point in, I guess that would have been 2020, and being like, "Yep, they're back next year." And as we see that. That's not a great strategy. It shouldn't be the strategy this year when it comes to Derek Wolf. It shouldn't be the strategy this year with Nick Boyle. And it shouldn't be the strategy this year with Tyus Bowser either. Not because he's not a good player, but because we don't know when he's going to be out there. Um, and so you definitely want to find someone you feel good about running out there week one. Um, but we know there's other needs too. And so at this point, rather than a quote unquote big swing like a Chandler Jones or like a Von Miller or someone of that caliber, to me, it would make a lot more sense and it would sound a lot more like the Ravens um, to go take a couple of medium swings, if you will, right? Maybe it's Bozeman and it's bringing Houston back, or maybe it's 
maybe Bobby Wagner, who's apparently pursuing, um, you know, his preferred team, which hasn't been, to my knowledge, reported who that is. Mike, you'd have to think it's either the 49ers or the, or the Ravens, um, given that it's been reported that Dallas is number two. Um, maybe it's someone like that if he wants to take less money to ring Chase and then bringing in, um, you know, uh, was it Treader, JC Treader? Yeah. Um, maybe it's something like that, but it, to me, it, where it seems like DaCosta is probably headed is multiple value spots that check off a couple of needs before the draft, because especially if we're not doing the comp pick thing, which I'm all for. Um, and I think that to go on a tangent here, the best possible thing that could have happened to Eric DaCosta is having to give up Ben Mason and Sean Wade last year, because he saw that sometimes having picks ain't all it's cracked up to be because you take some guy that's not even going to make the roster. Um, so I don't think he's quite in the less need F them picks mindset yet, but I think he's getting a little bit back to, he's kind of modernizing his view a little bit on picks um, to the benefit of the Ravens. But anyway, um, to make a long story short, I think that it's going to be more two or three mid-sized splashes at this point, unless a guy like Chandler Jones comes and says, man, I love Baltimore so much, I'll take $5 million less. And then the number still ends up being a big splash at some bargain rate. Yeah, so, I mean, a, cu- a couple things I want to touch on there. The first is I think if they're going to sign, like, what you would say is a day one starting edge talent, I probably think it's most likely. Like, Smith is the big one that you'd like to see, but you have to imagine that's because there isn't a great market for him. He's coming off a long-term back injury, which again, we may not love, but at the same time, we may trust a little bit more and we may believe a little bit more in him than another team does because we know him. And, you know, the other thing that, again, it wouldn't be anti-Ravens to see, you know, Jones land somewhere, or Joe, one, of, one of the three of Smith, Jones, and Miller, them being the top three, being the odd man out and landing in Baltimore. But I also think that edge rushers are going to get enough of a market that between the Cowboys and the Bills, who have been linked with Chandler Jones, um, and and a couple of the you know maybe less successful teams who might have a little bit more money to spend, I, I just think that it'll be tough for us to have Marcus Williams as our cake and eat it too with Zadarius Smith. So Derek Barnett could be an under the radar option. He's only 25. The Ravens liked him in the draft, but it doesn't seem like there's a ton of buzz about him as on the free agency market. I wouldn't be against a Jihad Ward reunion as one of the not even mid swings, but lower swings since he really didn't do much in Jacksonville last year after leaving us. But I still think he fits really well on our defense. And then I agree. Other than that, it's waiting out the vet market. Ryan Kerrigan, Melvin Ingram, Justin Houston. It's the same names we hear kind of year after year until they retire. And the Ravens do a good job of finding the one who has the most gas left in the tank. And we'll see who that is. Um, You mentioned Bobby Wagner and Miles Jack. They're two cap cuts that make sense as upgrades from re-signing Forder Bynes. But again, I kind of agree in terms of that's a... I don't think we do that right away. I think that's a move we make in in maybe later this week. It's not the next move because I think you, you know, Ron mentioned Akeem Hicks. I think the next move is probably interior defensive line. It's clear re-signing Clayus Campbell is a guarantee. I will, and the last thing I want to note here before I ask for your interior defensive lineman to target is that former Chicago Bear Eddie Goldman is going to be visiting the Ravens on Friday. Uh, you know, he is a traditional nose tackle, more of like a run stuffer. I don't think he has a ton of pass rushing upside but we don't really have a clear nose tackle right now. And while, you know, I'm not going to trot Eddie Goldman out on, you know, third and longs against Joe Burrow. uh, I don't mind having him down on first and longs against Nick Chubb and the Browns. So 
Why not? Yeah. Yeah. That would be uh, awesome. Eddie Goldman would just pretty much immediately slot in and take that Brandon Williams spot, you know, and just do everything that he did for us and probably still at a pretty high level, given that he's only 28 and Williams is going to be 34, I believe by the time the season starts. Um, there, I mean, there's some names out there that I'm kind of interested in. Like, you know, I've mentioned on this podcast, I think a couple times about how I wouldn't mind bringing in Sue and Dominican Sue for a year. Um, obviously Calais Campbell's still out there who knows what he's going to do. It's kind of, it kind of feels like he's been enjoying being able to have this kind of true free agency experience. You know what I mean? And kind of court these offers from all these teams. So, um, it'll be interesting to see, um, part of me feels like I would prefer them to, if they're not good, if they can't get like a Goldman or a Sue, when you look at the rest of the free agency list, it's, it's not, there's not really too, too much there. So if they're unable to get a, a Sue or a Goldman, I would probably prefer that being one of the positions that they addressed in the draft, whether that's, you know, a Jordan Davis at 14 or one of these kind of middle round guys, uh, what have you. But um, it feels like a very top heavy group in terms of the free agents. Yeah. It's, you know, Ravens fans understandably are not particularly high for the most part on the idea of taking Jordan Davis at 14. And that's a conversation for another day. But the, when you think about, why you consider something like him or even a Devontae Wyatt, it's because you picture the run that Najee Harris had that basically ended that first Steelers game. And you go, boy, if we had someone like that up there, that probably doesn't happen. Um, just if you play that in your head over and over again, and then you picture a guy like Jordan Davis out there or even a guy like the, the Dominican Sue out there, suddenly things get a little better. Um, and so this is, this is a, a, a thing where you don't want – to walk away with a fifth round nose tackle and say that your interior's fixed, right? We, we can take that um, and that'd be great for depth purposes, but you wanna make sure that you add at least one veteran to this group. DaCosta said he wants to get younger and that's great, but Justin Ellis cannot be the veteran presence on the interior defensive line um, at the start of the season. So whether it is Sue, whether it's someone who's more of like a, um, a traditional defensive end type, um, rather than a nose tackle, um, whatever the case might be, they need a, a veteran presence that is reliable. Um, you know, I've joked with Ron a thousand times now that the Brent Urban plan um, <laughs> is, is my official plan for this offseason. But if it is a reunion with him, um, whatever the case might be, they need a veteran presence who's had some success in this league anchoring that group. Um, just to give them flexibility in the draft. You don't want to have to reach for Davis at 14 if you don't, if you're not high on him. You don't have want to have to take Perry on Winfrey in round two or trade up if he's the next one there or or take Fidaria Mathis. Because after that, it is guys who you're taking just to hope that they take up space. Um, the impact interior group is not elite this year, apart from Davis. And so you don't want to box yourself in. The players are elite, but there's not a lot of depth there. So um, you want to make sure you enter this draft with someone you can trot out there on day one if you have to. Um, and not box yourself into a corner. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a good approach, and I think that's that's one the Ravens kind of try and intentionally take, not trying to box themselves into a corner. Um, I think one other thing, uh, probably one other position that we've we've talked about a bit on this podcast, and probably really the only one that you that I think 
we might be looking for them to do something in free agency is at tight end. And I think we say that because um, not because they have a deficiency there, but just because they could be losing Patrick Ricard. We already know they're losing Eric Tomlinson. He signed a deal with the Broncos. I guess he really wanted to play with Russell Wilson or something. So, I mean, we'll be playing him next year. It's going to be a huge revenge game against Eric Tomlinson. I can't wait, but that does take away a reliable run blocking tight end. And Patrick, Patrick Ricard is a free agent. He, I just saw a tweet from Jeff Zerebic of The Athletic who said that, you know, he's the Ravens are still talking to Ricard. He is still talking to other teams, but the Ravens are definitely still interested. Um, but apparently he wants kind of, he wants tight end money. He wants second tight end, tight end two money. And the Ravens already are paying major tight end one money and decent tight end two money. And so it's, it's honestly not clear they can take on tight end two money again. For Ricard, it might be more sensible for them to take, like, go with Ben Mason, unfortunately, or um, if Ricard comes back for top of the top of the top of the line fullback money. I think those are the only two options. It's just funny to me. You mentioned the need at, at like defensive tackle, and I just think, you know, maybe if Ricard's willing to play both ways, I'll pay him tight end two money because it's like he wasn't a great defensive tackle, but like, I don't know. We love we love Pat Ricard on this podcast. We're the official podcast of the Wildcat, which Pat Ricard gets to take Wildcat snaps. Trademark. I think people criticizing him being lined up out wide, first of all, don't understand motion in a professional football offense, but also are just like yelling at the wrong person because Pat Ricard does a ton for this team and we appreciate him. And we'd love it if he was back. Shout out, Pat. <laughs> any any thoughts on tight ends, fullbacks, the Pat Ricard situation, guys? Um, yeah, in terms of, uh, the, the free agent tight ends, I feel like I'm pretty much all set on all those right now. I mean, I, I'm, I'm still going to pound the table for Isaiah likely in the middle rounds until I physically cannot anymore. So that's my stance and I'm sticking to it. Uh, with Ricard, I, I things have obviously gotten a lot more interesting with that. And when you look at like who they've signed today, because, if they weren't going to take that Marcus Williams size swing, you, you kind of really wanted them to focus on bringing back like the Ricards and the Bozemans and kind of our own guys, the Averitts, who were going to kind of head up for greener uh, pastures. Now it's just when you look at how much money they're going to have, regardless of what Marcus Williams 2022 cap it is uh, to Nikhil's point, I don't, I don't know if you want to take on that, that other hefty contract for a fullback as much as we love Pat and as much as, as much awesome stuff as he does. Like it just feels like we might reach a point where there's probably going to be a few teams that are outbidding the Ravens for his services. So, I mean, hopefully something can work out and he's back at a manageable number to where it doesn't affect us signing people at other positions, but, I'm not breaking the bank even relatively, unfortunately, at this point. And again, I love Pat Ricard. He's everything you ever could want a Raven to be, but it's just how it is, unfortunately. Yeah, we we talked with when it came to the tackles about how um, the game plan this year cannot be what it was last year. And when it comes to just banking on injury recoveries, and if you're the Ravens this week, you got to take a long look in the mirror. You got to call your training staff and you got to say, you know, where is Nick Boyle and his recovery when he's healthy, he is hands down the single best blocking tight end in football. But if you, if you're looking at it and there's a legitimate question mark of if he's going to recover this year, you got to look at making him a post J one cut and adding another veteran tight end that can take that spot. Um, that's not 
slandering his ability to play. It's it's more that after a year where they gambled a lot on recoveries and they went, they have an eight and nine record to show for that. And obviously there's a lot more that went into that than just, you know, Derek Wolf, Nick Boyle and Ronnie Stanley. But um, that was a big part of their, their struggles out of the gate, at least. Um, you got to ask the question about that again, especially in a, a tight end class that's really deep. Um, you know, Greg Roman gets a lot of hate and some of that's warranted, but when they were at their best, it was running three tight end sets in 2019. And I will, I will never stop talking about that because when you talk about the speed you have to account for with Lamar Jackson, the speed you have to account for with JK Dobbins, having three athletic tight ends on the field that can block that can also run out for a pass. And now having a wide receiver, not named Seth Roberts out there on the field at the same time, that is nearly unstoppable. Are you going to, are they going to run the option? Are they going to run play action? Are they going to run RPO? There's so many different things you can do with that. And it is so unique. And there's a reason that Lamar Jackson was the unanimous MVP that year. And when you're looking at trying to find ways to get him better protection, having three more guys on the offensive line is a pretty darn good way to do it, uh, regardless of what your offensive line looks like. And so making sure that you have three guys out there that you feel comfortable enough with to run that again um, and to take your oft-criticized offensive coordinator and let him do what he does best, because if you're going to keep him, you have to let him do what he does. That's just it's kind of the way it goes. Um you have to ask if Nick Boyle can be that. And if there's even like a 50-50 call on that, he can't be on this. He, he can't be the tight end two plan with a Josh Oliver being number three. If he's healthy, no question about it. Get him on the field, get him contributing. But if not, you have to start looking at guys like a like a Kyle Rudolph, like a Gerald Everett, like a Blake Jarwin, like a Jared Cook, um, maybe even a reunion with Max with two X's Williams, um, whatever it takes. OJ Howard's out there, Hay- Hayden Hurst, who wouldn't love to have him back? Um, Anthony Ferkser is kind of like store brand Hayden Hurst. So he's also out there. If you're looking for, we have Hayden Hurst at home. Um, there's, there's, there's so many options there. And then you look at the draft, you know, Ron, you already mentioned Isaiah likely Jake Ferguson, Jeremy Ruckert, you know, Trey Lonnie Woods shout out Nikhil. No, I'm not even going to try and say the name of the guy from Maryland, but he would be a great H back option that kind of addresses tight end three and, um pat ricard's fullback position like we tried to have him do in 2020 with varying degrees of success because he's actually more of a true tight end um think of like a john U. smith how he was used in tennessee and what they were able to do with him um it's a year where there are just so many options i didn't even list you know all of the veteran tight ends out there demetrius harris blake bell uh jesse james like and again maybe those aren't ideal options but when you're talking about tight end two tight end three it's not so bad um it's a year you can't afford to waste a roster spot on a guy who's not going to play. And so they need to get in the medical room. They got to see what's up with Nick Boyle. And if you can't play, that's 2 million in cap space, by the way, you can go use um, and a roster spot to add a truly dynamic player for Lamar Jackson in a receiving core that is not particularly physically big. And that's another thing, you know, we've, we haven't talked about, you know, adding a, a receiver with size for Lamar because it's not, it's not number one, but this, that's another way to add a receiver with size without adding a receiver. Um, so there, there's just a lot to it. And it's, I know it's, it sounds like I'm putting way too much stock in the tight end, tight end two, tight end three spot, but there's just, there's a lot of different things you can do with it. And you want to make sure you get that right. No, I agree. I think the tight end two, tight end three spots in this offense are important. We know that, like you said, from 2019. And again, I'm okay if, 
The third isn't locked down, but again, I want a solid two locked down. And I, I hope that's Boyle and I hope he continues. But again, part of me is thinking I'm I'm curious to see what the market out there is for Ricard. When you see a report like multiple multiple teams are interested in Ricard as a I think Ricard could be a high end tight end two, something tight end two or something like that. That's when you're starting to think, mm, I don't know about that. And you start to wonder what the market is, especially because he really does profile as primarily a blocker. He just, as much as we love his passing and versatility on this show, it's it's obviously not something that you think in terms of a Kyle Juice check that went from the Ravens to a brilliant creative mind in Kyle Shanahan's office and is doing great things there. I cheer for him every time. And, but I'm not sure I see Pat Ricard doing that with another team. I would love to see it, but I still think he plays his best in this scheme with the Ravens and hopefully could be the kind of thing again with Bozeman where they realize the market isn't out there and they come back to terms on something that's closer to what the Ravens were originally thinking as their value. One of the things that I love about this team is they just have a really good idea of that word and what it means to every team for every player across the board value. And we see that in their signings, Morgan Moses and Marcus Williams today Um, guys, you know, this is a Raven centric podcast, but obviously plenty of stuff around the league impacts the Ravens. So one, one thing from around the league I think is worth mentioning is it, it looks like Baker Mayfield's time in Cleveland might be done. He posted a long message that seemed like kind of a goodbye to Cleveland earlier today. I saw a report from, I believe it was PFF's Doug Kied, who said that there are a lot, or a lot of teams that think that whether or not the Browns land Deshaun Watson, that they're rumored to be in the running for, they might look to trade Baker Mayfield either way. That takes him out of the division. That changes what the division looks like in terms of the contenders because if they land Watson, that elevates them quite a bit with Watson and Cooper as a one-two. But if they lose Mayfield and also don't add Watson, then it's pretty clearly only us and the Bengals barring a big season for Mitch Trubisky. (laughs) Mitch Trubisky. Yeah. Um, it's it's such an interesting situation because Baker has been so polarizing. I mean, literally since the day he walked in the door at Cleveland, when you think about all that stuff with him and Hugh Jackson and Tyrod before, Taylor in the beginning, arguably. and it's just what before arguably. Yeah. Yeah. He did, duh, even before I'll never forgive him for what he did to Ohio state's field, but um, it just, the Browns have put themselves in a very interesting position here because they have been so forthright with the fact that they're going for Deshaun Watson and you can't blame them. I mean, Deshaun Watson is a top five to seven quarterback in football when he's on the field, Um, all all current off the stuff field aside, you know, which we won't, we won't really go too much into, but um, they put themselves in this position where it's, it's like if they don't get him, it's all or it's all or nothing right now with them. Um, Baker pretty much in that letter said goodbye as much as you can without saying goodbye, like officially Uh, there's been some reports that his preferred destination would be Indianapolis. Uh, So we wouldn't get rid of him totally. He'd still be in the conference. I don't know if Cleveland would want to trade him in conference. They'd probably or potentially regret that. Um, Should he, should should they not get Watson and should he decide to just say, hey, you know, I'm not playing. I don't know if he would do that. I mean, with all the injuries he played through last year uh, and how much of a gamer he was, I don't know if I see him sitting out just to be spiteful, but maybe he would. I don't know. And it 
as weird as this is going to say, I kind of feel bad for him in a way just because he got judged so much based off this last season uh, in which he was clearly injured and more so by the week. uh, And just the way that the offense as a whole really never kind of clicked for Cleveland after that first week against Kansas city, it felt like even Um, I'm not really sure how I feel about Kevin Stefanski as a whole. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, I think that as a coach, there has to come a point where you've got to kind of do what's best for your player. And last year, that was very much so telling Baker, no, dude, take a seat. Like, you are hurt or you are injured. You are not hurt. Like, you you can't be on the field right now um, because a lot of times players aren't going to do that. You know, that, that inner competitor sort of takes over. So I think if Stefanski had done that, there's a pretty decent chance that we're not even, like, having these discussions and they're just looking forward to a bounce-back year from Baker. But now they've put themselves in this spot where they've kind of shot themselves in the foot and they better pray to the heavens that they end up with Watson, because if they don't, this thing is going to go south and pretty fast. Yeah, yeah. there's there's Teflon players and then there's narrative players. And Teflon guys are guys who can do pretty much anything and we're going to say they're great. And then there's narrative players that no matter what they do, we're going to talk about it. And Lamar Jackson certainly falls into that latter category. Mm-hmm. Um, Baker Mayfield falls into that latter category where had he, I think to your point, had he taken a seat, we talk about him being soft and pushing through it's, oh, he can't play through the paint. Again, I'm, I don't feel that way. And I think he's gotten a really bad rap for that. Um, but but that would have been the narrative. And you can say that's fair. You can say that's unfair. Um, but to me, it's, you know, you look at, talk about spoiled for Cleveland, right? A team that we've seen the quarterback jersey with all the different names on it. You have a guy who wins you a playoff game. And then suddenly it's, you know, the fact that you couldn't be an MVP playing on one leg, one arm, I'm pretty sure you had like a hurt shoulder or something like that. Like, I don't know what they expected of him. And then, oh, by the way, he took away one of his two elite receivers. Um, And again, I don't know. You can pick who you want to believe in the whole Odell versus Baker thing. I'm not there. I have no idea. I'm not going to pretend that I was like some locker room insider on the Browns or anything like that. According to my sources. Right. According to (laughs) Twitter. But uh, you know, when you, when you got a, a less than in his prime Jarvis Landry and you know, Rashard Higgins and et cetera, and then one arm of Baker Mayfield and one leg, I don't really know how fair it is to be like, why isn't he a pro bowler guy? Like what the heck, man. Um, And so as far as his production goes, I'm not ready to, you know, base how I feel about him off that season. If he comes back and plays great, I don't think it's a, it shouldn't surprise anybody. Anyone who is surprised by that's not paying attention. But um, as far as his future goes, you know, he's, he's certainly going to be at, he would at least be the same for the the Colts as what Wentz was, um, if not a step up. Um, And yeah, you can't blame them for going for Watson though, Uh, because with Burrow, with Jackson in the division, and then a, a still a good defense in Pittsburgh, you need a guy to do that. Now, how much better does he make that team if they're not going to add more than just Amari Cooper? Who knows? You have to think that if they take him, though, they're going to go get a receiver in this really deep class. So Browns might be a threat. I think that they'd still be a, they'll still be a good team with Baker next year if they add him, add some talent for him. But, um, but yeah, we'll see what happens there. I, I think that despite you know what we saw at the Ohio State thing and despite all that it's you know he's also the guy who's in these you know commercials where he's taking care of progressive 
feel or is it progressive field? No, it's progressive. Yeah. What's their stadium? I forget what the, I forget what the stadium name is, but it's a progressive commercial. Um, And then there's the ones where he's, you know, hanging out with the moms talking about what like, and then he's doing this. Like he seems like a a good guy who just likes to have some fun, you know, with the fans and everything. So I don't, you know, the narrative that he's like some toxic personality, you know, I don't think that there's a whole lot of water to that. Um, He just likes to have some fun, but um, we we have that with Jackson when he flips into the end zone with Kansas city, we like that, right. That's, at the end of the day, NFL is an entertainment product, and he's entertaining. Yeah. Like we can't. Yeah, I like personality. They're, they're 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 people, and I think especially in the day and age of social media, like you like knowing their people. They're dudes out doing whatever, just like you are, and they have lives. And you know, especially some of them are you know closer to some, you know closer to some of our ages. Like yeah. it's it's cool in that respect. And I think the other thing is Baker took his licks. He took his licks in the league. I think he has earned the right to be a starting quarterback. Like, oh, he absolutely. earned it for the Browns. Like, but he came in the league with a lot of hype, number one pick and didn't live up to it. Took his licks, battled, battled for injuries. And I, I'm at a point where, you know, there's no one I ever really like wish like, oh, you know, I hope you do poorly. But when Baker comes in the league, I was like, I think Baker probably is going to need to calm down a little bit. All the hype over Baker and the Browns. And it's there every off season, every year, they kind of get their clocks clean. I'm like, all right, I'm good with that. Baker's not ba- Baker's not projecting as a cocky NFL player, and that's good. He's a confident, excited one, and, and that's that's what I like to see. Fun competition in this division. You know, Ron's heard me talk about how hard it is for me not to like the Bengals. You know, I like I like teams that have personality. It makes things fun. So any other final notes about anything else around the league? I you know, I know it's it's after midnight now. We've got a busy day ahead of us with the 4 p.m. deadline today that Teams need to be cap compliant and um, they also need to take care of any other cuts they want to make um, in order to be cap compliant. The Ravens, I think, are already set to be cap compliant, but they still will want to make, want to make some cuts, some that we've discussed on previous podcasts. I think Miles Boykin is probably the big remaining one that we're just kind of waiting for at this point, unless they manage to find a trade for him, which I don't think they will. Uh, any Any last notes we want to add before we sign off here, guys? Uh, I guess just kind of in summary of everything we saw from the Ravens today, it's just like, you know, a plus day, man, you bring in a stud who's going to be a a cornerstone of your defense for the next half decade. At least you bring in an instant plug and play starter on the right side of the offensive line, uh, a spot that's obviously been one of, if not the biggest hole on the team. Uh, It's just really good. Things are very promising right now. And, um, looking forward to seeing what the second wave of free agency brings. Like you mentioned, all those names that are probably going to be cut between now and four o'clock tomorrow. And all of these kind of second wave guys who the Ravens have feasted on over the years, it's going to be interesting to see uh, how they approach that whole second wave. Yeah. The last thing I'd say is that there's going to be for all the players that we've seen in, in what seems to be a pretty unusually deep free agent class because of the way that the salary cap worked with the COVID years and all that, there's going to be more guys who hit the market as post J one cuts. And so the Ravens might walk away from tomorrow and walk away from this week and walk away from March with some holes that don't even get addressed in the draft. And by holes, I don't mean like starting quarterback, but you know, second linebacker, third defensive pass rusher, whatever. Right. Someone like that, you know, maybe a hole might be too strong a word for it, but you know, needs of of varying degrees. Um, And there's going to be some decent players that hit the market in June and July that they can add to, to address those things. And so if, 
you know, for, I know that this is the time of year. We love to see everything done. You know, Ron, you and I hung out on zoom for most of the day yesterday, waiting to see some action and, and we're disappointed, but, but if they walk away from March and the draft for that matter, with a few spots, let, let's, let's not crucify EDC for that. And let, let's give them till training camp. Let's give them till August. Let's give them till, you know, the back end of August to see where this roster's at, because the Ravens are really, really good at, at bringing in value players late. Um, I mean, they lost three running backs and in a span of three days added guys who gave them serviceable production off the street. Um, we fixed a linebacking core mid season in 2019 and that 14 and two year with, with Anwasar and, and uh, LJ four it's, they can do these things on the fly. They can get production from guys on the fly and they can get value. So, so let's give it the off season. It's, it's called the off season, not the off week. Um, so let's let it play out and see where we're at in August, not where we're at on March 25th. No, I mean, I even think saying that they're in great shape, though, with these two signings. I think if they had ended day two and we had seen all the moves we had and these two guys go other places, I think we would have been a little bit concerned and probably rightfully so. But I think these two signings are the good reminder that this team knows what they're doing and that they're headed in the right direction. And I think... I mean, I honestly think we we probably fit, we walk out of the draft and most likely, I feel like the starting depth chart is more or less going to be set and it's going to be those later additions that are going to be kind of the minor need situational guys that are, I think, I like to think of them as rotational role players like in the NBA on teams that make a deep run because you need you just need rotational depth everywhere because when you're playing those extra playoff games. It's just necessary. Uh, Ron, as always, great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Michael, it's a true pleasure to have you on the pod. We definitely hope to have you back again. Thanks so much, guys. Have a good one.